It's been 20 years since 9-11. Today's college freshmen, they weren't even alive then. And with our busy lives and the relentless 24-hour news cycle, we're in danger of letting 9-11 fade away from our cultural memory. We won't let this happen. Iron Light Labs presents the 20 for 20 podcast, 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. I'm Nils Jorgensen. I was a New York City firefighter for almost 22 years until I contracted the rarest form of leukemia from cleaning up Ground Zero and was forced to retire from the job I loved. I'm lucky to be alive. Many of my best friends aren't. But this isn't about me. It's about the heroes of 9-11 and its aftermath who forged good out of evil. Love amidst the taking of 2,977 innocent lives and about an equal number who've died since then from 9-11 related illnesses. Today's story, episode 13 of 20. When I got to the site and I saw that pile, body parts all over the place, burning and stench. They took me down there and I just remember a lot of mud. I remember all the particles in these big lights and stupidly I just stood there and said, well, where is everything? That's Joe and Sonia Agron. Joe is a Marine who served in Vietnam and came home to work as a New York City police officer for 30 years. And before 9-11, Sonia was an EMS instructor. After the attacks, they both went down to Ground Zero to help with the recovery and cleanup, and it would forever change their lives. Both Joe and Sonia developed illnesses and cancers from the toxic environment there, and they still suffer from it right now. And yet amidst all of their tragedy, this extraordinary couple carries on, volunteering as docents at the 9-11 Museum, helping preserve and honor the stories of 9-11 victims and heroes. Today, Joe and Sonia join us to tell their 9-11 story, though Sonia will carry most of it as the events of 9-11 are still too raw for Joe. But first, a message about our generous sponsor. And now, let's get back to Sonia to begin their story. Um, well, I was born in Manhattan, uh, raised in the Bronx. I became an emergency medical technician, and then an accident killed that career. So I became a stay-at-home mom, uh, and then 9-11 happened. And uh, my husband was there on 9-11. In fact, 9-11 was his birthday. He took our daughter to school. She was 16, and since I'm in charge of birthdays, I told him, come home, I made your breakfast, watch TV, and just wait till I get back, and uh, you're going to have a nice surprise. Um, and unfortunately, that never happened because he was here for 1993. He always believed they would come back. And when he heard the news, he didn't think if it was terrorism or an accident. He knew. And he then went to pick up our daughter, dropped her off, and, and reported to the precinct. I was in Midtown Manhattan, and we were evacuated. And then I wasn't panicky. I honestly thought it was either some kind of training or a gas leak. But when I went outside, there were so many wall-to-wall people. I mean, you could barely turn around. Um, I saw fighter jets, and within seconds, my cell phone went off, and it was my husband. And he said, listen to me carefully. We are at war. You need to get out of the city, stay away from the trains, and get out as soon as you can. But then we got cut off. 
and I had no idea what he was talking about until maybe about 20 minutes later. Uh, I came on the job on June 26, uh, 1974. September 11th came, and I was temporarily assigned to disorder control. Uh, a lot of people don't know what that means, but it's crisis management for the police department in association with New York City Police Department and the Fire Department and Corrections, everybody included. And um, when I saw what I saw on TV that morning, I knew they came to hit us. Jumped in the car, picked up my daughter, and then ran over to my command, temporary command, which is over by the old 4-4 precinct by Yankee Stadium. And uh, they briefed me on everything, and that's when I called my wife up and told her. Uh, I responded down, saw the smoke coming from the two towers like matchsticks, and uh, knew that this the worst was coming. Anticipation, anxiety inside of me started building, but because of the training we had, I was able to go through what I had to do with the rest of the guys. And uh, the smoke was thick, People were coming out. We were directing them to the bridges so the locations where they can go. Long story short, when I got to the site and I saw that pile and that fireman responding and the police department was going there, body parts all over the place, burning and stench. I was stuck in Manhattan. After he called, there was no way out because the city had shut down. And I eventually found a way home at the bottom of the TV that I was watching in a hotel. They said the mayor was opening up the city. And so a bunch of us were able to find a cab, get home. Um, before that, when I found the hotel, this is after speaking to him, I don't even know what, how much time went by. I honestly don't. I was watching the television and I saw the towers go down. I saw everything there and I wondered where was he calling me from that he knew so much information. But I wouldn't allow myself to think that he was actually there because I would have lost it. And I had to get home to my daughter. When I did get home, she was sitting on the floor hugging her knees and she just looked at me like I was some odd figure. And I, I heard her say, please God, let her be for real. And I realized at that moment as a mom, she saw everything happening on television once dad dropped her off. She thought I went down to respond because yeah. I'm a former emergency medical technician. Yes. So as I'm going to comfort her, the phone rings at home, which is odd. There was no phone service. So when we picked it up, it's my husband. And he says, um, it's really bad. And I can hear it in his voice. Uh, he has spoken to me over the phone about a lot of tragedies that I'm watching on TV, this was different. And he kept talking about how dark it was, it made no sense to me because it's still that bright, beautiful day here. And he was talking about how it was a war zone. Everything's gone and nothing, I couldn't compute that. But then he said, I'm gonna call you at 10. I'm stationed now at Tower 7, um, setting up for the National Guard, and, and I'll call you a 10. Soon after that, the phone rang again, and it was a friend from out of town, and I said, wait, they're able to get through. So I gave her all the numbers to the family and told them, you know, it's on television now, you might see him because everything was live. 
And when I told him where he was, that's when they said, Tower 7 just went down. And my daughter screaming how unfair it was that we got to say, I love you, happy birthday, and then only for him to die. And I go, no, we're not going to do that. Without hope, we cannot cope. We're going to wait until 10. That's the way it's going to be. And it was the longest four and a half hours. Daddy just never called. And I remember thinking I didn't want the daylight to come because that meant I had to start over and I didn't know how to do it this way. And so I had neighbors and friends come over and they asked, did you guys ever talk about, you know, they indicated he's a cop. Didn't you guys ever talk about what would happen if he passes? And I says, I know exactly what he wants, so I'm not talking about it because it's just too final. And then the daylight came and I couldn't be Sonia. I had to be a wife and a mom. My daughter's looking at me and I just really want to scream like this isn't the way it's supposed to end. And... Remember my girlfriend telling me, you know, you, you ha we'll think for you. Stay in the moment. And my husband had a really bad, bad habit. He had a thousand keys on the keychain of the house keys. And look at where we live, a high rise. You can hear anything from across the room. And when I heard the sound of the keys, I looked at my friend, my neighbor, and I said, oh my God, he made it home. He's giving me a message. And she looked at me, she goes, well, he's talking to me too, because I hear the keys, which was at that moment like, no, this was our thing. And the door opened. And when he walked in, it was a little unrecognizable because he only was able to wash the top of his head. Yeah. The rest of it was covered with soot. And I just stood there and I realized exactly what my daughter went through because I had already planned in my mind what he wanted and so when he walked in he wouldn't even say anything to us he just stood there I went to him and he said you need to patch me up I'm hurt and I'm like what when I saw his injury I well look I'm good but there's no way I can do that and he goes you don't understand if I go to the ER they're not gonna let me go back and I'm going back isn't that what you would do so I patched him up as best as I could and sent him back. But he was so quiet for days after that. The city had, you know, changed everyone's schedule. So he was out there by 7, and he would come home by, I don't know, 7.30, 8 o'clock. I wouldn't talk. Just took a shower, sat down on the sofa, looking at no TV, wasn't on. And about two, three days after 9-11, he had a piece of paper. I took it out of his hand, and I said, talk to me. And I looked at the paper and he said, they're gone. And you know, both of us being on the job, they're gone, meaning they removed from duty. So I said, why? Why are they removed from duty? He goes, no, they're gone. My friends are gone, my partner's gone, and I don't know why I lived. Well, I wanted to say something like, because you're blessed, but that sounded horrible to say in the midst of everything that was going on. But there was that moment that my daughter and I had to then actually realize uh, this did happen. Because once dad came home, we were, you know, tunnel vision. Okay, everything's good. Everything's fine. Dad's home. We don't have to worry about anything. But now we had friends. And then my daughter had to go to school that Monday. And then once I dropped her off, she got back in the car. She says, I'm not going. I don't want to leave you. 
And I have to be honest, I've never really been scared of anything, but I said, she had to go to school, she had to be 16. I gave her the best patriotic talk I could find. And as soon as I saw her go into school, I just drove over under some trees and sat there. I was afraid to come home. I was afraid to be alone. What if something happened? I couldn't get to her right away. And it did that for about seven to 10 days. And every day, how are you? What are you doing? You know, I just lied. And a few days after that, she just said, Mom, I'm going to be okay. We're going to be okay. I just want you to know I could see you out the window. I laugh about that now, but it was so hard when she said that. And that was the first time I, I just, I can't hold it in anymore. And I cried. And it hurt even more when I told her. I just wanted you to be 16. And she said, I'll never be 16. And they took everything. They took our, even though we're adults, they took our innocence. They took what we, you know, what little innocence we had. They took that and now they're taking this from my daughter. And I felt I made, gave her the wrong message. So I made a few phone calls unbeknownst to my husband. Including the American Red Cross. And I was immediately picked up. Just come in for one day. We just want to talk to you, see your experience. Um, I did. And they gave me my first assignment, which was a ground zero. And he was used to coming home and seeing me in my PJs. And I was dressed with a bag and he goes, where are you going? I said, well, um, I'm doing a midnight shift to ground zero. And he said, fuck no, you're not. <laughs> um, and I said, well, either give me the keys to the car because I'm driving to Brooklyn where I had to be picked up and or drive me. And he looked at me and goes, what am I supposed to do with, with, with her? What do I do? And I go, she does know how to sleep on her own. Yeah, but what if she wakes up in the middle of the night? She's not an infant. I had to go through this whole thing. He was silent driving the first time. And when he dropped me off, he said, can I convince you? Is there anything I can say? And I said, yeah, will you stop going? And he said, no. I go, well, then you can't stop me. And after the break, we'll hear Sonia and Joe's story of helping at Ground Zero. Let's return to Sonia on volunteering at Ground Zero. Those first two days at the Respite Center St. John's were heartbreaking for me because I couldn't do what everyone else was doing. Everyone was hugging and kissing and like, what do you have so much to be happy about? It just didn't hit my head. And then one of the ladies says, we're going out to ground zero to pray. And I said, well, am I allowed to go? And she, it's the first time I ever looked at my ID and she says, says access everywhere. And I said, I have more access than my husband. Oh, that that's gonna go down well. Um, but they took me down there, and I just remember a lot of mud. I remember all the particles in these big lights. And stupidly, I just stood there and said, well, where is everything? Now I had to accept it for a third time. And all they did was hug me. And they said, you must be from New York. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we prayed. And the only thing that brought me peace was that I kept looking at the particles through the lights and I just had to say that those are the souls going to heaven. It's the only thing I could say to get me out of that state of mind. And we walked back and everything just changed. Just like everything was 
black and white. And when I walked in, I saw the love. I saw the hope. I saw the help. And I thought, yeah, I can do this. And I still couldn't talk to people. I just did what I was supposed to do. So the only way I knew how to talk was I came home and I bought a bunch of lifesavers, put them in a bag and handed them out with a little sticker. You're my lifesaver. Thank you. And then I made took these chapsticks because I knew how hard it was out there. And I made these flag stickers and I called them hero sticks. Um, 19 years later, I always thought that was so silly. It was the only way I could communicate with people. 19 years later, Joe comes home and says, you're not going to believe this. Your silly stuff isn't so silly. What? And he shows me a picture, and it's a worn-out hero stick. And I said, where'd that come from? He says, I just ran into my friend, my, my, my supervisor at Ground Zero. He's now a chief. Uh-huh. And he goes, he says, no matter where he's gone, this is the one thing he always remembers to take. And I said, does, does, does he know that I did it? He goes, I, I, I told him that it came from you. So he just said some woman gave it to him. I cried so much that day because I felt, okay, somebody, somebody got it. Somebody understood what I was trying to say, although I couldn't speak the words. Um, and that was just a wonderful thing. My job was to get them after food. If they could take a shower, we give them clean garments. And then I had to assign a room to them to take whatever break they needed. And when I got them through there, um, the first time I did that, I was a firefighter. And he grabbed my wrist and he says, please, I can't go in there yet. And I said, but you need to rest. And he said, no, I just can't close my eyes. And two things hit me. He doesn't want to see what he just came from seeing. And that's why my husband doesn't talk. He's haunted. Oh. And there were many times with him, he says, can we just sit? And I sat and he, he grabbed my hand. And he said, do, do you pray? And I said, yeah. And if I didn't, I, you can teach me. And this went on. There had to be at least three or four doing each of my shifts, police officers, which were the hardest. And some of the people I worked with said, we don't know how to wake the police officers up because firefighters could take off their outer garments and put it at the foot of their bed. Police officers couldn't take their Can't take your gun guns out. Off. Yeah. So when they were trying to wake them up, the police officers would go, what? And they were afraid. And I go, oh, I know. I have a husband who does that. Yeah. What you do is you go to the head of the bed, you rub their cheeks, yeah. and you let them think they're at home. Yeah. Um, so again, I thought back then I have nothing to offer, but I did. The thing is, many of them would cry. And I cried with them because I couldn't do that with my husband. So I was just praying maybe somebody in the day sure would be able to do this for him. Um, I, I bought a book of jokes so I could tell him a joke. Dumb jokes. I mean, really dumb jokes. But as long as I saw a little crack in their smile, I was good. And some of them would say, can you just stay with me till I fall asleep? And the joke was, well, how can I tell? It's dark in there. And he goes, can you just stay with me? I said, I'll, whatever you want. And my supervisor is there. Never told me I couldn't do it. Yeah. You know. Um, well, they knew why you were there. 
because it's hard for us to express fear as cops and firefighters, right? It's 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 that part of being a man, and you have to have that macho shield. And, and that was the thing. And you that... broke that down, and we willingly accepted it. We 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 needed to, I guess, heal for those moments before we went back to hell. And you were the healers. You were the angels. Everybody walked in, you know, very tall, very tough, sure. very tired. But by the time they were assigned their room after they were showered and whatnot, you could just see it in their eyes and said, that's just how my husband looks every day. Um, wow, I get it. The two of them spent months at Ground Zero, Joe pulling day shifts and Sonia night shifts. Amidst their recovery efforts, they didn't have time to celebrate Joe's birthday. You might remember, Sonia had a few surprises for him. I was going to go on a television show just to do the opening to wish him a happy birthday. And I knew it would embarrass him because <laughs> the guys at the precinct would say, ooh, happy birthday. Oh, they would be busting his chops, yes. But this is before 9-11. For birthdays, I always like to plan ahead. And so I, Joe's a Marine, and I bought him the statue of the Marines lifting the flag. Yes, ma'am. Hiroshi. Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima. Yes, ma'am. Um, he never got to open it, and I totally forgot about it. And then about two weeks later, I, you know, he finally had a day off where I insisted he stay home. And he op we opened the presents, and I just totally forgot that I had bought that. And he opens it, and he just, well, he called me a witch. <laughs> you know, he says, why do you always pick these things that have something else to do. I, I, and I said, we can put it away. And I don't know where it is right now. I, I somehow suspect it made its way out the door. It was hard. My daughter was in college and I needed something to do. So I typed in volunteer opportunities and amazingly enough, 9-11 Tribute Center came up. It's now known as a 9-11 museum. And I thought, what are the odds? I went for my interview and they told us what they wanted us to do. I thought they were absolutely nuts. Who wants to hear what I have to say? I didn't lose anybody, but I did it. And when I did my first tour, I, I went to Joe. I said, you got to do this. I can't tell you how, the hugs at the end. That's like my paycheck. He refused to do it because as a Marine, he left no man behind. And as a cop, he was supposed to protect and serve. And he didn't do that. But I kept trying to tell him, and one day I looked up, and there he was. And I finished what I was doing. We drove home in silence, and he came home, and he, he doesn't cry often. And he said, I'm, I'm, I didn't know that you guys went through that. And I said, because we don't talk. And um, he became a docent. And I got a little bit of my husband back. And the way we say, think of it is that it's cheaper than therapy. You're talking to perfectly good strangers that become your friends at the end. The hardest thing, though, for me was when he became um, a docent and he did a tour, I had to hear for the first time what he dealt with. And each time was different because now he was remembering things and I had to keep such a straight face because now I'm hearing this how many years later? And that's where the word communication came from. I don't care how bad it is to talk about it. If we talk about it, it's not as bad as we think it is. And even if it is, now we know we can move on from there. Um, and that was a problem we had, and a lot of people, you know, have. I would find out about a year after, when maybe two years after, because Joe wasn't a docent, a volunteer, until five years after I was. But 
and I was trying to help them with the story, I said, you know, people are from out of town, so if you tell them I came up west from Broadway, they're not going to know, know that. Yeah. They need to know numbers. They need yeah, to know yeah. this. They need to know what you went through. Right. And so I said, well, you need to tell them, like, why didn't I get the call? And he went, oh, I didn't tell you? No, he goes, I forgot. Boy, the look on my face. So now when I do it, when I started doing tours and he would talk, I said, honey, you're not done. <laughs> and they would go, what? And I go, can you please tell these wonderful people who were crying for you why you didn't call? And he goes, oh, I forgot. And you have to see the women like, oh, come on, mister. <laughs> She's sitting at home waiting for you. But one of the most beautiful things that has continuously happened is that if I have a wife and a husband, and he's a police officer, and I talk about what I went through, and you see the wife silently choking up, and the husband is like, wow, 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 and then he looks at his wife and he says, do you go through that too? And she says, yes. And I said, we're like army wives. We wait for our husbands to come back, and nobody seems to understand that. You know, you're married to a cop, you, they know what they were doing. Yeah, they knew that there was a possibility they would die, but they don't go to work every day thinking they're going to die. And what about everyone left behind? Do you not think about that? And several times, several husbands, you know, they'll walk without holding hands. Now they're hugging each other as they oh, walk yeah. by. Because they get it. They see in another perspective, which they don't see. Selfishly, I do it for the hugs. It's like the best feeling after a day and it just gets harder when we get a notification from John Field, someone else died. It, it's harder now when his partner died two months ago from COVID. He couldn't fight it. Um, and now um, what we thought, well, two years ago, I got very, very sick. I lost um, 70 pounds in four months. Didn't know what was going on. But I still kept volunteering until I actually passed out. And finally, the doctor said, uh, you do know something's wrong. And within a month, I was in the hospital, ICU. Um, they built something inside my abdomen. I lost intestines. Um, I'm just starting to gain the weight back. But we thought that was it, because I almost died. So I thought, we're gone through the worst. And a week ago, I took him to my pain management doctor and she read all the results and she said, I'm going to give you a shot to help, but you need to go to Memorial Sloan Kettering. You have a tumor that's covering 80% of your spine. And last night, um, we thought we had to go through more testing. Last night, the doctor called and said, no, you have to come in right away. So the other shoe has dropped. Many shoes have dropped for the Agrons. Sonia previously developed cancer and lost her kidney to it. And her husband Joe also got cancer and three lung diseases from Ground Zero's toxic environment. And um, it sucks. It really sucks. We became grandparents two years ago at the point where we were both thinking, why are we still alive? And when my granddaughter was born, I said, this is why we have to be alive. And now we're faced with, what have we not but we don't live enough to see her grow. But then I remembered something I did with um, John Field and John Stewart. Two years ago, they announced the opening design of the Memorial Glade and I was on the committee. 
The Glade is the museum's memorial to all those who helped at Ground Zero in the aftermath. John Feel, who Sonia mentioned and whose story is told in Episode 4, is the leading warrior for 9-11's victims. He actually built a memorial wall that honors all those who've died in the aftermath. And comedian John Stewart is his partner in crime. And I was asked to say a few words and I thought, that's really horrible that you want me to go after John Feel. Like, I can't follow in those footsteps. So I just spoke from my heart and I said that this was a living memorial. This is what we're leaving behind for our children and their children. They're going to know. I don't want them going to cemetery. But I remembered saying, and somebody just sent me the video again, that I said, we both know how it's going to end. I didn't realize how true that statement was going to be. But I can't look at it as the end. I mean, the fight is just beginning, so I refuse to see myself as a victim, my husband as a victim. We are going to conquer this. Because that's the one thing that we came out of with from 9-11. Hope. We conquered 9-11, we're going to conquer whatever comes after that. Sonia, I'm sitting here with you this last couple hours, and with Joe, it's truly been one of my honors and, and just you, you've helped me like I, I, I've had a lot of questions answered just by being in your presence what's your best advice to someone that may be too ashamed to ask for the help how can they help themselves how can someone who's suffering in silence right now that was down there who walked in those same footsteps as you and Joe and the thousands and thousands of responders and recovery workers how can they heal themselves 20 years later? Well, first of all, shame has no part. It should not be a part. There's nothing to be ashamed about. Um, the isolation and the anger they feel is totally understandable, but they need to talk. They need to share. And if they can't do that yet, just go out and be kind. It'll come. I promise you it will come. There's no doubt about it. I can tell you that 100% because he started to do it. And Joe started to do it, that anger yeah. was still there, but he talked. And sometimes he can't do a story. And I blame John Field for that when he <laughs> sends out the notifications. Yeah. Like, how do we go on? Now somebody else has died. But then we take that. But John I, doesn't want them forgotten. Well, well that's, that's why. That, but that's, that's, why that's where I go further with John. Because then when I do my tours or my talks, I would dedicate the next yes. hour to this person who just died. Or, and sometimes I have to say these four people who have died because sometimes we won't hear from John for a week and then sometimes we'll hear from him three or four days in a row, this one died, this one died, this one died. Um, so I take that sad news and I say, I'm gonna honor you today because no one's ever gonna know. And what John does with the Memorial Park, you know, I've gone twice but this year we're going to see his partner's name read. He was such a good friend of the family. I mean, we called him my daughter's other father. And now, God, how you die at 51? That doesn't make sense it's to not, me. It's not fair. It does. And, and, and you'll never see your grandchild. You'll never see your son go through the police academy. You'll never, ever see your son have a son or a daughter. You never. It's gone. It's, that's it. But, we must do this so that memory stays alive. Memories are treasures now. Yes. But those memories are also stories that will never be told, and that's my job. That's my husband's job. 
We're not going to stop doing it as hard as it is. Simply put, on 9-11, they stole the voices of so many, but they didn't take mine. And as long as I can breathe, I'm going to do it. Even if I have to do it from my bed. Thank you, Sonia and Joe, for sharing your powerful story. It's truly incredible that you two have gotten all of these illnesses and cancers from Ground Zero, yet you're still volunteering at the 9-11 Museum. You can imagine how many victims wouldn't want anything to do with the topic, given the hell that you've gone through, but not these two incredible human beings. Thank you, Joe and Sonia, for joining us and being an inspiration to us all. And folks, if you've enjoyed these stories, be sure to check out our website at 20for20podcast.com and consider signing up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. You'll receive notifications about our latest episodes and great written summaries of them as well. We'll also notify you on future projects of Iron Light Labs. Lastly, I want to give a special shout out to a listener named Julie who wrote a review on Apple Podcast. She said, I can't thank you enough for putting this podcast together. It is absolutely fantastic. I've cried and sat with the pain of your guests and marveled at their heroism and selflessness. This is such an important part of history to record, and each story is beautiful in its own way. Thank you, truly. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And God bless these first responders then and now. Julie, thank you for that beautiful review, and a big thank you to all of our listeners as well. And to our veterans out there, happy Veterans Day. We'll never forget the sacrifice of all those who have served to protect our great country. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you and stay safe out there. And now before we close, a special message from a dear friend of mine. Hi, this is actor Robert John Burke. I've been fortunate to be a part of projects like Tombstone, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, Gossip Girl, Rescue Me. But I've been even more fortunate to become friends with incredible first responders like your host, Nils Jorgensen. Folks who are willing to sacrifice every single one of their tomorrows so that we can have our today, as Nils so powerfully says. I lost a lot of my friends on 9-11, including my best friend. I felt like I had to pick up the flag for them. So I became a volunteer firefighter, and I have been ever since. It's why I'm so grateful you're listening to the 20 for 20 podcast. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review it, and share it with five friends because these stories are so important. Thanks for listening.